First Presbyterian Church Macon has had a, a great history and tradition in, with RUF. Uh, it has produced uh, a lot of interns, campus ministers. It supports our work at Mercer in a beautiful way. You know, Elliot and Carrie are, are thankful for that. And um, it was, I believe, uh, last time I was actually here in worship. I've been here for meetings several times, but it's been a while. Uh, Jim Baird was your pastor last time I was here, so I'm, I'm older than I look. <laughs> uh, we're reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you be with the one who proclaims, though he senses his own weakness and inconsistency, that he would proclaim in the power of the Holy Spirit. For Christ's sake, amen. I have never been a huge fan of personality tests. Um, when I became an RUF campus minister, uh, I took a test. I think it was uh, what I think they call the Myers-Briggs tests. And I took it for a couple of pages and for like 20 minutes, and they gave me four letters. I was, I even forget now, I was E-N something something, E-N, and in about a paragraph they described um, what, I, what my personality was like, how I work with others. And, you know, I just, through the years, have, you know, I'm not quite sure about that. I think there's a lot of studies to show that even when I take them, they change. And the other thing I'm a little suspicious about is it takes something that's really, really complicated, and it kind of gives us bite-sized nuggets to um, give us the illusion that we understand something that's really, really complicated. So I know people love them. My wife loves them. I just... I'm not a huge fan, but I do get, I understand the attraction of trying to figure out our personality types. I do. Um, it's because it's obvious that people have a certain disposition that's different from other people. It's kind of consistent. I have three children. Uh, they're grown now, 25, 23, and 21. I got that. Um, and they're, you know, they're really, really different. You would wonder if they came from the same parents. My oldest child, a daughter, if she was our only child, we would certainly be the most self-righteous parents on the planet. It was just kind of the way she came out of the box, even as a baby. Feed me when you want to. It's great. I can wait. Sleep, no problem. Love sleeping. When she was a toddler, all you do is give her a little raised eyebrow, and that's all you need if she needed any kind of correction at all. Now, my two sons completely disabused us of any kind of self-righteousness, when it came to parenting. Lovely, sweet kids, but they're just wired really differently. Even between those two, they were really, really different. So I get the idea there are definitely differences in personality types. I just don't know whether we can sort of reduce it to four letters and pretend that we understand it. 
Well, I'm pushing 60, and now uh, looking back, I can sort of look at my life, and I, I can actually come up with my own personality type, the one that kind of dominates all others. What is it about me? Well, I am preternaturally and deeply grumpy. I am grumpy all the time. I'm just a grumpy person. I was born that way. I was just grumpy. I was grumpy as a kid. I'm grumpy. I just, I just, you know. Remember the, remember the ice bucket challenge videos? Remember those? Remember those things? Like, you know, people pouring buckets of ice over their head. Oh, am I making make a connection here with me? I remember thinking about that. Oh, stop doing that. That's silly. People, this is the thing people love. I'm just, just grumpy. And, and, but I have to confess that on balance, no more than on balance, being grumpy has not served me well. Okay? It really hasn't. Being grumpy, I've said things that I really probably shouldn't have said. I've gone in with certain attitudes I shouldn't have had. It's not a good thing, so I'm not boasting about it. It's just kind of the way I am, that I've had to repent from a lot. But every now and then, being grumpy has come in really handy. Because being grumpy, you have a certain inbred incredulity to everything. Like, oh, really? Seriously? And that came in handy, interestingly, early in my walk with Christ. I became a Christian in college at the University of South Carolina. And I knew that through a, through a very small, what is now a PCA church. And I figured, well, I need to find a campus group Christians to hang out with. And in my hall, the Douglas dorm, in, which they thankfully torn down at USC, in my hall there was a sign for a, um, a Christian group that was meeting nearby. And I went that evening. And it was a very large group. And before they began and played music, they began with students... Uh, students getting up and giving a testimony. And the first a young woman stood up and she gave her testimony. It went like this. Y'all, I'm going to tell you about a miracle. I thought, wow, this is a miracle. And she went on. Y'all, I was um, driving to class today and I couldn't find a parking space. And I prayed and God gave me a parking space right in front of my classroom building. And I sat in the back and here's where Grumpy kicks in. I went, I, you know, I don't know anything about theology or much about the Christian life, but I know that's not a miracle. That's sort of like kind of cheapening. No, that, no, that's not a miracle. So I had to find a different Christian group, and the next week I found RUF, and they were as grumpy as I was, and here I am. Look where I got. That natural incredulity... And I think with our text this morning, Romans 5, 1 to 6, which is a, a, the context being as, as the Apostle Paul unfolds in beautiful, linear, exacting fashion, our condition before God and what the gospel is in Romans 5 as he, as he unpacks the application of this. As we look at this, if we, if we don't have a healthy sense of incredulity, questioning the way we think about certain things that we tend to just accept, that these passages become very, very difficult. For you see, the idea that, that struggling and suffering produces endurance, and that produces character, and that produces hope, is an essential part of this passage. But if we have this idea of happiness and achievement that we tend to just blindly sometimes imbibe and to accept, if we don't raise the eyebrow, we don't go, well... I'm not sure what we think about that is true. These passages become unintelligible. Because for most people, um, we, 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 see, we see resistance 
And we see, uh, we see um, problems as an obstacle to be overcome. It is, our, it, is our, it, is our, it is the one thing preventing us from happiness. We're right here for us to make sense of this. It says something completely different. That this suffering, this endurance, leads to something quite beautiful. So what is it exactly that we have to sort of be kind of, not grumpy about, but go, eh, I'm not sure about that. Let's think first of our idea of happiness. Let me suggest that what we think about being happy is sometimes inflated, usually inflated. It's often misguided. It's sometimes flat out wrong. And in fact, is a hindrance to understanding what this passage is all about. I used to say it's overrated. Happiness is overrated. I don't mean that. I think happiness should be, joy and happiness should be part of the Christian life. Absolutely. But where suffering fits in and resistance is extremely important to understand. If, in fact, the way we talk about happiness is largely in post-Western constructs. That is, the way that we think about happiness is, is, is influenced by a long history of philosophical movements. And we see this emblematic in our Declaration of Independence. That is the unalienable right, the life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. <clears throat> well, really? Seriously? That's an unalienable right? I don't, I don't know. And that kind of thinking is kind of suffused down to us where it makes us at times lift the idea of personal happiness to be a celestial level. It also produces a lot of anxiety. The philosopher John Stuart Mill famously wrote this. Ask yourself whether you are happy, and immediately you cease to be happy. What he meant was this, is that before the Industrial Revolution, your existence and my existence was predicated on eking out an existence every day. We would farm the land, we would hunt, we would gather, and we would be the subject of death by early disease, by, by eaten by animals. Life was hard and it was brutal. But with the Industrial Revolution, Economies changed, work became different, and we had spare time. And we thought about things. So instead of your, your day being filled up, how am I going to eat? How am I going to feed my family? You would wonder about things. Like, well, why am I here? Well, what, am, I, am I happy? What, what, you know, what's going on here? And Mill was saying here, you know, when you start doing that, you immediately become, like, really unhappy. Like, oh, all of a sudden you start thinking of things that you hadn't thought about before, and maybe this would be better or that would be better. And there began the process by which even Christians began to see problems in life as being really a problem to be avoided rather than to be faced in a Christ-like way. One way this manifests itself on a daily basis is what psychologists and sociologists call the satisfaction treadmill. Ever heard of that? Another one put it this way. He calls it the hedonic adaptation. It is the predictable and frustrating way where something that gives you a lot of happiness in the moment, a new car, a new job, getting into school, a promotion, anything, like a, a new Christmas present, a toy you get, that for, some, for, a, for a period of time, it just really gives you a lot of happiness. But then after a time, it sort of gets relegated to the background, and it sort of doesn't produce the goods anymore. Here's my example. This is, a, this is a Nexus 5 telethon. And when I bought it, I'm a bit of a phone geek, when I bought this thing, um, it was my precious. <laughs> I love this phone. I mean, I would sort of wake up and stare at it. This is a cool phone. Look at this. 
it, it, it's, got, it's got like 85 gigs of memory in it. The internet is really fast. Man, it's got all kinds of apps on here. They're really cool. I can do a lot of great stuff with this. And it's got this big screen. And then when it got its first scratch, I was traumatized by it. But then something happened. Then it was, oh, okay, there it is. Then I, then I kind of figured out what it didn't do. Then new phones came out that were better, and I wanted those phones, not this phone. And now I just kind of throw it in the back of the car, you know, drop it, I don't care. Happens to everything. Happens to everything. My wife and I recently moved to Atlanta from Birmingham, and for the first few weeks, oh, this is cool. Then, oh, wow, the traffic is awful here. Okay? <laughs> it's just the way it works. And what that means is, is that these little things that we get this little endorphin rush from, these new things, they, they kind of, they're good things, they're often God's blessings, and, but they fill a role in our lives that becomes a little weird because it only lasts for a short period of time. And that is, these are cool things that ease our lives, that make us happy, and when it's absent from that, we have a problem. And so can you imagine when serious problems come along? Something a lot more serious than a scratch phone or a slow phone comes along. And the idea this produces endurance, this produces character and hope, becomes a real problem. The other issue we have is the way that we perceive even our past. I think this is a bigger thing than we, we realize. Um, David Bentley Hart is a, a Christian philosopher, and he wrote this, that the past is always, to some extent, a fiction of the present. Think about that. And what he means is that per, our perception of the past is often bound up with what he says is a fiction of the present. The way that we look at the past is not always the way the past really was. You get that? You know, there was a, we, we have a lot of warm memories about how we grew up in our college days and when we were first married and when our kids were babies. But if you could take a time machine back then and really experience what you were doing, you will realize that you were not quite as deliriously happy then than you thought you were back then. And 20 years from now, you will look back on this season of your life and you will think that you were happier than you are right now because we filter out the bad stuff. We look in soft focus. We even at times, in a very unhealthy way sometimes, kind of suppress things that were really, really bad because we have this need that, oh, that was so wonderful back then in contrast to my present, which is so awful. And it comes to haunt us. And so when we reach these it's another reason why when we face this resistance, we face this problems, we'll compare it to those great glory days, and it will be difficult for us. Jesus has to mean something when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. That these things and these toys, they do, they do fade. And if we're looking for a constant rush of these things to make us happy, it becomes difficult. Or consider the Apostle Paul's words when he says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And the great toxin to, gripping that, to come to grips with that is the view that we have a view of happiness. It's a little, we should go, uh, like I was in the back of that room as a freshman. I'm not sure about that. Connected to that, and very closely related, is happiness, and there's also the idea of achievement. If we get a little, if we get a little crossways when it comes to happiness and suffering, 
we get really tangled up when we think of suffering produces endurance and what we want to achieve with our lives. What, Mark, you ever heard this question, what legacy do you want to leave? It's not a bad question. What mark do you want to make? That's a good question. But the way we answer that is very, very important. I was, um, it was my third year at NYU, with RUF, and it was the beginning of the academic year, and we had this, like most campuses have, we have a, have a group of, of all the campus ministries. We would gather at certain times and pray for each other. This was the start of the year, before the academic year began at NYU. We had a meeting, and the person who led the meeting said, what we should do this year, this, this meeting is, we should go around the room and talk about what we hope to produce in our students. What are your dreams and your aspirations for your students? What do you want to see in your students in 20 or 30 years? And the person began next to me went the other way, so I had a lot of time to think about it. As they went around the room, it, it, it sort of focused on the things that those ministries were known for, which were good things. Things like, we want our students to have lives that count for eternity. I think that's a great idea. I think it's great. Next person said, well, I want our students to be involved in foreign missions. I want them to have a heart for people who don't know Jesus overseas. That's a great thing. Can't disagree with that. Next person said, I want our students to know their Bibles, to memorize the Bible, to meditate. Great thing. All for it. Evangelism. One person said, I want our students to have a real heart for the poor, the widow, the afflicted, and the marginalized. Amen. All for that. Now, they're getting around to me, and I'm going, oh, well, you know, all the good stuff is taken. What am I going to say? Oh, I didn't say that. Um, sort of. Uh, but I was thinking about, well, RUF. I, it gave me time to think about, okay, well, what is it that, what is our thing? Because I, I, I agreed with all this stuff, and then, well, no, I know it. I know what it is. I know what it is. So what it got to me, this is what I said. I said, well, in 20, I'm really hoping and praying that in 20 or 30 years, my students are still Christians. And there was a pause, and I could tell from the atmosphere in the room that everyone felt sorry for me. Okay? Poor Tom. Because I was like the oldest guy in the room by, by a long shot, even though I was like, I was like mid-40s. Um, and, you know, really... I could tell they wanted me to elaborate. Well, yeah, that and what else? Well, no, that's it. And to this day, that's an honest answer. To this day, the happiest moments I have in ministry, seriously, are when I run into people that were in a Bible study I was running in 1982. And their kids are now kind of grown. They went through a lot of stuff in their lives. They struggled a lot. Went through some seasons perhaps of doubt and frustration, but they're still following Jesus. They're still laboring in a beautiful, boring life for Jesus. And I mean that in a beautiful way. That is, the, the idea that the, the Christian life is always exclamation points, that our legacy has to be something, woo, here we go. No, it's, it's, like, it's like Martin Luther says. The idea, what are we going to do in the mundane days of faithfulness? And I would rather, I want, that, I want to see our students work through those days and remain as Christians. And, you know, it just, it just sounded to, to some years like I was underselling things and that, like, you know, don't you want better for your students? I can't think of anything better than that. Because suffering, what produces character, endurance, and hope here. That's part of the deal here. That part of this idea of endurance 
is facing suffering in a Christ-like and a godly way. Now, don't get me wrong. The New Testament certainly, the Bible certainly speaks of the gospel, the church, Christians doing extraordinary things. These men who have turned the world upside down are now here. I, I get that. I mean, that is, the, the, if the Christian life of the church is not, is not doing things like that collectively, and even individually at times, no, what's the, no, it does do that. But in the component parts of the Christian life, it is often just a beautiful, boring life for Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's, a faith, it's a mundane days of faithfulness that mean we're facing resistance and suffering in a way which says, I am always carrying around the death of Jesus in the body that I might manifest his life before others. So what is your hope for your stuff? What is your hope for your children? Is it that we have in parenting, is it that we want our kids to be socially skilled, um, academically achievers? It's a great thing. But are we a failure if they're not? In our workplace, in our relationships, what do they look like? I don't normally look to Woody Allen for my theology. He's a movie maker, filmmaker. But Woody Allen, again, famously said this, that 80% of life is what? Is showing up. Showing up. Last year at our staff training event, where I talked to all our interns and our campus ministers, what I said is, my prayer for you is that you would just show up. And what I meant is this, is that in spite of your fear of going to campus, in spite of your anxiety about whether God can use you, in spite of all the insecurities you have, the worst thing you could do is not show up. Go. Move in spite of your fears and work through your issues and make your mistakes and repent from your sins. But if you don't show up, nothing's going to happen. And so the Christian life and ministry is you've got to show up and you've got to engage in spite of it being a boring life for Jesus, in spite of the fact that there is resistance and it may not look like everyone else's life. It's important to show up. And I will end with I'm coming in for a landing here. The third point is this, is that if in fact that we, we have a really weird idea about happiness, we kind of inflate it to where it doesn't need to be, if in fact we kind of overstate the idea of what achievement is, the real Gordian knot here, the issue is what we see in verse 6, 5 and 6, the love of God being poured out into our hearts, and verse 6, at just the right time, what, Christ died for the ungodly. What that says is this, is that if we overvalue this idea of happiness and achievement, we consistently undervalue the idea of God's love in the gospel, the unmerited favor of Christ. Well, I mean, that, that's the key right there, right, isn't it? I mean, it's not rocket science. It's difficult to apply. But our idea of happiness and achievement are conditioned by the reality that Christ died for us. His love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that's, this makes it okay. This helps me through, my identity is not bound up in my achievement or my happiness, but it's bound up in Jesus. And we do it by doing what this church has always stressed. We give it names now that I'm not kind of all that thrilled about. We call it, you know, being gospel-centered, grace-centered, missional, you know, preach the gospel to yourself. I love all those words. I do. But we have, we've, we've, we've constructed these words in a way where we, we're almost behind a certain camp or party. It's all the same thing. That Christ died for the ungodly at the right time, and his love has been poured out into our hearts. 
You may not know it, but I am, I am a, I'm a musician. I'm a really bad musician. And I, I love music. I can understand music. But I'm one of those people that is not very good at it. But it doesn't matter. I play it anyway. I, um, I play bass guitar. And I play in bands of men my age. The first one I formed was in Savannah. And my kids were mortified by this. Dad, don't do this. Um, all men in IPC. And we're, we, we got together. And you know, some guy played guitar. I played the bass and the drums. And we, we play things like Louie Louie. You know this one? Like three chords. A, D, and E over and over again. You know, wooly bully, you know, all those kind of things that are really dead simple. And like, when we first got together, this is down in Savannah, we had our first practice. And we're playing Louie Louie. A, D, and E. Over and over and over again. And about a minute into the song, I'm just kind of messing it up. Because of bass, you just got one note, right? I'm still messing it up. I'm everywhere. I'm getting frustrated. And the guitar player's name is Frankie Daniel. He still, he still works for IPC down in Savannah. Above the din, he yells at me, Tom, don't stop. Keep going. I mean, it's three chords. Just keep going. You'll, you'll get it. I mean, just don't stop. And so, okay, after five or ten minutes, oh, yeah, it's pretty easy. And it began with it being, you know, out of time, oh, hard on the ears. But after a while, okay, I figured it out. Okay, A, D, E. A, D, E. And it's not, it's not okay. All right. It, it, there was a certain harmonic cadence kicked in when I just kept going. But while I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm doing this right, it just sounded terrible. There is a certain harmonic cadence of the gospel that is predicated on you just keeping going. Just keep going. Don't stop. I mean, the, the basics of verses 5 and 6 of Romans, of Romans 5 is that a harmonic cadence? In other words, like that song in that band, you can't mess it up. I mean, it, it, there's A-D-E. It just, you just keep going. You're going you're gonna to get it. It's going to fall. Eventually, it's going to be somewhat listenable, maybe even get better. When you face resistance, when you face trouble, when you face sorrow, when you face the temptation to crawl into a fetal position, and inertia wants you just want to take over, and it doesn't make any sense that this will produce endurance and character and hope. It is, no, there's a harmonic cadence here because Christ died for the ungodly. There's your identity. His love is in your heart. It's been poured out in your heart. And just keep going, keep going. Keep going in your church. Keep going in your fellowship with others. Keep going, and to some degree, it's okay. This sounds a little better, a little better. And it becomes a beautiful thing. Chuck Close is an artist who wrote this. Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us to show up and get to work. I, I cannot stress that enough even in the Christian life. Again, Jesus in the beautiful, boring life. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of showing up. It's just a matter of not having to wait but feel like, oh, I feel inspired today. Or even... Even I feel like Jesus still loves me. There are seasons of life where we just don't feel that way, but we know that he does, so we keep going. So it's a prayer for First Presbyterian Church of Macon that this will be a kind of church that understands that Jesus does, and so he wants you happy in a deep, deep, sustaining way. Not in a way that means you need a new cell phone or that always have the new shiny object. 
He wants you to see your life as, as having achievement when you remain faithful to who, you, to who Christ is, what is set before you, and not being predicated on, outwardly speaking, it being something that will always impress others. And it will be the kind of a church that says, you know what, the Christian life in Jesus, I can't mess this up. I can sin, I'll have to repent. I can make some really unwise, boneheaded decisions. But following Jesus means because of what he's done for us, I simply, I can't mess this up. So I keep going. A, D, and E. I looked at Jesus. I looked to the church, word and sacrament, and that may be a boring life, but it certainly is a beautiful life in Jesus. Let's pray. Well, thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts and help us to make it our ambition to please you, that we would shake off the sin that so easily entangles us, that we watch our life and doctrine closely, but that we would always exalt and rejoice in the unmerited favor of God in Christ and being convinced the best is not behind us, but the best is yet to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.